You awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a pod that exists to discuss and maybe set straight, maybe not, the rumor, the innuendo, the hidden details that surround some of your favorite bands and songs. Maybe. My name is Brian. I'm Murdoch. So Murdoch did a rock and roll draft real quickly before we get started with on his birthday because he couldn't leave his house. And so he gets people on Zoom. I don't know why I wasn't invited, but we'll talk about that later. Probably because yeah. I would have taken all your picks. And what was the lineup you ended up with with your rock and roll draft music festival? Because... Prince, Led Zeppelin, Queen, and Bob Marley were already chosen. I chose Biggie, The Beastie Boys, Tom Petty, Oasis, Rage Against the Machine, Marvin Gaye, Metallica, and Iggy and the Stooges. And then I missed my last two picks because I had to leave. But <laughs> He had to leave the Zoom meeting. I- yeah. <laughs> I mean that's a dynamite music festival. I would go, I would go to that music festival in a heartbeat. Um, right. So the guy we're going to talk about today would be on. I would probably put him in my draft, and it's because he's a sneak player, because not really a household name, but like a guy who had a massive impact uh, on on music in general and and, and several different genres. I'm going to see if I give you some facts and clues. I want to see if you can name who this is without me telling you. You wow. can do the intro. Okay. How's this? At? You think you're up for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So I hope I can go. knock this out fast. Okay, you ready? Yeah. yeah okay. Hit me. All right. Van Morrison wrote a song about him. Michael Jackson dedicated his album of the year Grammy for Thriller to him. The Commodores recorded Night Shift as a tribute to him. And Motown founder Barry Gordy Jr. co-wrote with him and called him, quote, the greatest singer I've ever heard. Do you think you have it? Uh, I thought it was Barry Gordy. Uh, hold on. <laughs> I got one more. When someone told Elvis Presley that this guy had been dubbed the Black Elvis, Elvis said, I guess that actually makes me the white this guy. Oh, my gosh. He had between a three and four octave range, and he was so awesome on stage, he was basically ripped off by Elvis and by, and by uh, Michael Jackson. He was so awesome on stage, he was dubbed and often referred to as Mr. Excitement. It's James Brown? Okay, just tell, just tell me. I don't know. I don't Jack know. Leroy Wilson Jr., you know him as Jackie Wilson. Jackie, okay. Hey. Yeah, so your love has lifted me higher. That's one that most people know. Uh, but he had a ton of other massive, massive hits. And he had a huge influence, like I just ran through, right? But he also lived a lot. Like, I'm not kidding when I say that if we wanted to do a spinoff of this pod that was like a six-episode limited series about Jackie Wilson's life, there are enough stories. But this story is just the crazy weird centerpiece but i've got to tell you a little bit about him since you don't you don't know so are you ready to take this roller coaster ride yes yeah jackie wilson had a rough go of it as a kid dad alcoholic like i mean honestly this is kind of a textbook early rock and roll story right like this is a kid who grows up in detroit 
in a bad part of town, and he has nothing going for him. I mean, the reports are not only was his dad an alcoholic, he was an alcoholic by the time he was like in middle school. Like, Tom. you you know your life was rough when you kicked your alcoholism before you graduated high school. Like, that's literally, you know, you've, you've gone through some stuff. That's your college essay. But he didn't actually go to school very much. He instead liked to skip school and hang out with a gang that he joined called the Shakers. This is like in the 40s. So this is right after World War II. He went to, before he was 15, he was in the Lansing Correctional Institute in Lansing, Michigan. That is juvenile detention for two different stints. While he's there, learns how to box, drops out of school altogether in the ninth grade. He's 16 years old. It's 1950. So think about what wow. 1950 is. Now, uh, okay. here's the crazy thing. So he learns how to box in prison or in juvenile detention, kid prison. And depending on what version of his biography you read, if you read the stuff his record label put out, they will tell you <laughs> that he became a Golden Gloves welterweight boxing champion in Detroit. I'm not entirely sure that's true. I, it, it, he definitely boxed, but I, you can find just as many reports that said he was terrible and that the idea that he was good was a thing made up by his record label. So, they, I mean, it makes there's a whole other thing to layer on top of stories like this about African-American artists in the 50s and 60s, because the narrative for a lot of it is controlled by white people. So right, yeah. you have I mean, there's just so many layers of stuff to sift through to kind of figure out the story of this guy. So. He's out of school at 15. He gets a girl pregnant at 16. And it's 1951, so he's got to marry her. So in 1951, he marries Frida Hood, whom he had known since he was 10. So just a neighborhood kid, right? There is a rumor, again, how do you verify this, that he had already fathered like 10 kids at this point. I find that pretty, I find that pretty hard to believe, but it's out there. Yeah. He's 16 years old. And he starts doing talent shows and he's singing around Detroit, meets this guy. Well, this guy named Johnny Otis of the time is doing this talent show, notices him, gets him in with these auditions with Detroit singing groups, right? We, we are we are on the verge of the Detroit in the six, as the 60s ramp up. So first he's with a group called the Thrillers. They change their name to the Royals. They get signed and kick him out. Yeah, the Royals. Okay. Uh, Dizzy Gillespie has a label called DG. Get it? Dizzy Gillespie? Yeah. But you right. spell it out. D-E-E-G-E-E, which is my mother's maiden name. G-E-E. And he records a version of Danny Boy in 1952 on Dizzy Gillespie's record label, which is pretty sweet. Then he joins the Dominoes in 1953, the year my parents were born. Oh, what's... Oh, the Dominoes. Yeah. Do you remember the Dominoes? Their yeah, first release with him was a song called You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. And okay. then they did a song did called they, Rags to Riches. And then they, they, they had a pop hit. 60 Minute Man? No. Um, I don't know about that one. They, their first pop hit was St. Teresa of the Roses, and that was in 56. So we're talking early rock and roll. But here's the interesting thing about the Dominoes, and it's funny that you, you remember the Dominoes. So before they got – this is one of those classic rock and roll things where it's like uh, – before they got famous with Jackie Wilson, there was another guy in the Dominoes who had kind of helped them get to the level where they were at. And he left and said, I'm splitting. I'm starting another band. And his name was Clyde McFadder. Do you know who Clyde, Clyde. McFadder was? No, but I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now. <laughs> Clyde McFadder joined a little group, started a little group called the Drifters. 
Oh, yes. He's a rock and roll Hall of Famer. Yeah. Clyde McFadder was a big deal. So then, in 90, I mean, he has enough success with the Dominoes that in 1957, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a solo career. Like, in a lot of ways, it's really interesting because this is like the same thing that ended up happening in the 80s to a lot of acts, right? Where they would like go out with 70s and 80s like they in rock and roll they'd have a couple hits and then they'd be like i think i put out a i think i put out a record amount i mean freddie mercury yeah. right like the the dollar signs are there somebody tells them like hey you should do this all the money goes to you you don't have to split it four ways um and so here's the crazy thing about when he he goes uh solo so he gets signed by this manager whose name is al green not to be confused Reverend. By the Reverend Al Green. But he, this guy was a big deal because he was already managing other big singers at the time. There was a guy named Johnny Ray. There was a guy named Laverne Baker. These guys were making hits. And here's a fun fact that we'll get you into Eichenberger family history. He was also managing Della Reese. Do you know who Della Reese is? Yes. So okay. Della Reese also later in life became an actress and she was in a show called Touched by an Angel. <laughs> She was. And she was in my house growing up every Thursday night. Um, She was a singer. I mean, she was a singer. But yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a a singer first. And so. She had a uh, Don't Don't You Know. That was her hit song. I mean, she was, you know, they let her sing in the show even when she was, I mean, she was probably in her 60s or 70s at that point. So this guy is like, don't worry about anything, Jackie. I'm going to get you the record deal of the century because I'm the guy. So he goes to Decca Records. Decca Records is like, hey, we're putting out, we're starting a new label called Brunswick and he'll be our guy. And they, they're like, cool. Tomorrow comes down the contract. <laughs> Al Green dies that night, <laughs> the day before he signs the contract. It's, it's like what the, the uh, modern equivalent would be is when uh, the guy who signs you gets fired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what happens is, and, and I'm a little unclear as to why this is, but I, my guess is knowing other things about Jackie Wilson and his career. I mean, first of all, you've heard he didn't go to school. So like he's not educated super well. And I also think artists like this were really taken advantage of at this, you know, at this point in history. And so they basically just like, he becomes kind of, his contract becomes the property of another guy that worked with Al Green. And this guy's name was Nat Tarnapol. And we, when I say we could do the limited series on Jackie Wilson, we would do a whole episode on Nat Tarnapol because Nat Tarnapol is like the guy that managed George Jones that we talked about, where he just like financially wrecks him. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a, there are some similarities between the George Jones story and this story in that this guy had no idea how to, how to manage any of his money. I don't even think he saw very much of it. And there's a lot of conjecture that Nat Tarnapol did a lot of stuff that was shady. That's not even where we're going with this story. Instead, okay. instead, we're going to go to the non-financial, crazy fun part of the story, which starts by me telling you that on top of being very talented and having a four-octave range, Jackie Wilson liked the ladies. Yeah, apparently, with all these kids. Uh, yeah, so at this point, he already has several kids. Remember, he got married at 16. He's married with kids, but he is enigmatic, and there is just some swagger that the machine that is the music of the 60s has to capitalize on, right? Let me just tell you, before I, before we get into the real, like the players in this story, let me give you some context. I already told you that some people say that he had a bunch of, he like had impregnated 10 other women before he <laughs> got married at 16. Whether or not that's true, we do know this is true. So when he was launching at some of his concerts, he would do a thing called a kiss line. Do you know about this? 
no, no, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> so this is not something that happens in 2020 or, you know, since I've been going to shows in the late 90s. Yeah, right. this this is in the era of Me Too. We would not even talk about it. It feels weird talking about this, but this is the thing that would happen. It was a fairly orderly queue of women that would line up by the stage. And there was a point in his show where he would come out and he would stretch out on the edge of the stage floor and he would touch their lips with his lips. Like this is, I know, isn't this crazy? Like late fifties, early sixties. So here's, you know, somebody who actually has admitted to having been in a kiss line for Jackie Wilson is somebody who I would have gotten in the kiss line for two summers ago when I saw her play as a 60 something year old woman, which is Chrissy Hind. Chrissy Hind, yes, Chrissy Hind has said in public that in Cleveland, in the early 60s, she was a teenager, and she got in that kiss line, and she got, quote, a big juicy one from <laughs> Jackie Wilson. <laughs> Jackie Wilson, so what here's, a freak. Here, here's, here's another thing about Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson, also known for the fact that his female fans constantly try to take his clothes off. So this was like his bit. Like, it's like Morrissey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On numerous not, occasions, not Morrissey. W- women, right, would rush the stage and attempt to disrobe him. This is just part of the show, I guess. And usually he would let them succeed to a certain degree, right? All yeah. accounts, all accounts say he was into this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, no wonder. I wonder uh, when Elvis ever first time saw Jackie Wilson. That's so gotta be a- there, there's actually a story. So this is crazy. So... And, and the, there's a personal Murdoch and Brian uh, history to this. Do you remember the guy that we had on our first podcast, Ice Cream Headache, who was uh, Johnny Cash's drummer? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So remember, part of the reason we met him is he was part of a, an off-Broadway touring production of the Broadway show that was about the time that Elvis and Johnny Cash... The, the million dollar quartet. The million dollar quartet. That's what it was yeah. called. So and he he also he also was uh, plugging a it was like granite countertops. Yeah, that was pretty. <laughs> like he had. To, I gotta I gotta mention my granite countertop. It's amazing. It's like Johnny Cash's. It was. Drummer. It was one of the most bizarre conversations I've ever had in my life. Mostly because he's telling us these like stories about literally being in the room when some of the very first rock and roll songs were written, and and then he pitches to the countertops. It was all very strange, but. All that, so to not to get too, too distracted, but so there is a recording, and I'm unclear on exactly which recording it is, but there is a recording from the actual Million Dollar Quartet where you can hear them talking in the studio. And Elvis says on the recording that he's been seeing this guy from Detroit sing, and he did this killer version of Danny Boy, and he's one oh, of the best yeah. singers he's ever seen. There's like a whole thing where Elvis acknowledges very early on that he has been watching Jackie Wilson. If you look at Jackie Wilson, if you look at the, um, and we'll put this in the show notes, but there's a performance, and I'm not even sure what year it is, um, a TV performance of Love Lived to Me Higher, where it's just him on a soundstage. It's one of those shows and from the 60s. And uh, like you're like, oh, like if you didn't know, you'd be like, oh, that guy's just trying to be Elvis, or that guy's just like trying to be michael jackson or whatever but like he clearly was before both of those guys like those guys took from jackie wilson's style and swagger like he was mr excitement it's crazy and you i i know i'm going to send you down a youtube wormhole later but you gotta watch it because it's great they they met i know that they were friends 
like Elvis and Jackie Wilson knew each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this comes this comes later. We're gonna get to this. Okay. It's All it's right. the it's the second part of this story after the main part of the story. When we talk about his death. We're gonna get to the the Elvis thing. No. We're, we're up to the point where we know that the women like Jackie. You know, the girls that date Sam Cooke, then they come Jackie Wilson's way. One in particular, this woman named Harlene Harris. She's an Ebony Magazine fashion model. He's still okay. he's still married to Frida. He's dating Harlene Harris, and it's Valentine's Day, 1961. They go out for Valentine's Day. I'm sure they did something nice. Turns past midnight, and they decide to go home. So it's the wee hours of the morning, and Jackie and Harlene come home to his apartment in Manhattan. They walk up a bunch of stairs. Someone steps out of the shadow, bam, bam, shoots him twice. Okay. And he is freaked out. I mean, seriously shoots him, like, in the stomach. He's able to back up and get down the stairs into the lobby, and Harleen gets him into a, I guess, into a cab, and they get him to, or somewhere, they get him very quickly to Roosevelt Hospital. They immediately have to push him into surgery, and he is in the hospital for weeks and weeks this is what happens he loses a kidney one bullet goes so close to his spine that they're never able to get it out he carries it in his body for the rest of his life now you probably have a question for me what the hell just happened brian yeah well who who shot him do you want the story that if you were a fan of jackie wilson in 1962 the story you would have heard let me tell you that story first the police show up and there's a woman there they turn her over to the press there is a picture if you want to look this up there's a picture of this woman holding the gun that exists because the police let the friggin newspapers take pictures of this woman this is what the management tells the press there is a deranged fan <laughs> whose name is Juanita Jones. And Juanita Jones shows up, never met Jackie before. Jackie says, you got a beautiful life to live, Juanita, or girl. Don't you worry about doing this. You should not be shooting yourself. And he tries to take the gun from her. And in his selfless action, there is a scuffle, and he gets shot twice in the stomach. That is what they tell the world. There are radio interviews, there are magazine interviews later, where Jackie sticks to this story. And he basically says, yeah, there was a fan, showed up in my apartment, shot me twice. That's the story you will hear. But I'm here to tell you that if you look at all the evidence, and you read a lot of reports, and you hear from other people, no one really thinks that's actually what was happening. What happened instead was, Juanita Jones was Jackie Wilson's other girlfriend. <laughs> oh. Oh, okay. Maybe. Like, just the other girlfriend. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, what really happened was she was known to both of them. He'd been seeing her. She clearly knows how to use a loaded handgun that she has with her. Doesn't yeah, seem good. like that was an accident. Technically, no one will say they know exactly what her intent was, but everyone's pretty sure that both Harlene and Jackie knew who this woman was. And given his reputation, it's pretty 
everyone's pretty confident that Jackie Wilson was also spending some QT with Juanita Jones. QT. This almost ends his life, Mark. Normally, I would end the story here, and I would tell you how Jackie Wilson was playing casinos up until his 80s. But that's not what happens. The events leading to his death are just as crazy as this in a totally different way. He's carrying that bullet next to his spine all the way to 1975. Oh, my gosh. On 19, in 1975, he gets a gig at the Cherry Hill Latin Casino in New Jersey. Dick Clark's good old rock and roll review at the casino on September 29th, 1975. Wilson comes out. He's singing Lonely Teardrops, one of his biggest hits. While he is singing Lonely Teardrop, he has the most Hollywood-ready, stereotypical, but not actually what it's normally like, heart attack that you've ever heard about. Okay. He falls over. According to some people, he might have hit his head on a piece of stage equipment. The coasters were on the bill. Remember yes. the coasters? I love the coasters. Big fan. Cornell Gunter. Cornell Gunter of the coasters is the first guy to see this happen because he was doing backup vocals. He's doing mouth to mouth on stage. Wow. Can yeah. you imagine being there in the room when this happens? It, it sounds like a really traumatic, weird experience. So jarring. So he he is doing mouth to mouth on this guy. He can't talk. Jackie Wilson no longer can talk. They, the only way they know he is cognizant at all is he's able to blink at them. So they started like asking him questions and he's answering like through blinks, like blink twice. If you think this right reports vary as to whether Wilson experienced a stroke or a heart attack. Again, see like nothing, no good records were kept of any of this or whether or not there was an additional head injury, but this is known. He never talks again. He doesn't die Mark until 1984. This is nine years. This is 1975. Wow. Oh my God. I never knew that. He immediately goes in to a, uh, like a rehab, like a rehab center. Yeah. And it gets real cloudy as to how he pays for any of this. Because remember how I told you we were skipping the episode about Nat Tarnapol, but that guy just basically took all his money. Yeah. So, he a bunch of that financial trouble hits after the gunshot stuff. So in the sixties, we're now in seventy five, and he's looking at like he can be stuck in the hospital, and it's very unclear exactly what how any of this is paid for. So I actually did some digging, and I found I found online in the archives of the New York Times, a story about this from 1976, where there was a lawsuit against the insurance company because they were refusing to pay Jackie Wilson's medical bills. And Jackie Wilson's estate won. So there was a settlement that says the insurance company was going to pay however long he had to be in this rehab center and X amount of dollars a week or whatever, like living expenses. But that article came out in the mid seventies and he lives for another nine years. Yeah. 
which is crazy. So a lot of people think he, he remained comatose, but I found reports to say this actually wasn't true, that the coma only lasted about four months, and then he was in a bunch of medical facilities, and there's supposedly like some film footage that exists that shows that he's helpless but not in a coma. Um, yeah, so like he had neurological damage. Yeah, talk. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he never he never talks. I mean, I don't think anyone disputes that. So here's here's the cool part of the story. I mean, if there if there could possibly be a cool part of the story, and I don't know if this is true, but he stays in this home for nine years, and no one's really sure how he paid for it. The insurance company gave him some money, but this was clearly expensive. He'd basically been robbed by his manager. I mean, it's, he's destitute. This is terrible. And he dies. When he does die, he dies in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. But how does he get to stay in the nursing home? There's two accounts of this. And I don't know if either of them are true or which one of the two is true. They could both be bogus. But if you look around, you will find one report that says that Dick Clark paid his medical bills until the day wow. he died. Wow. There is another report that I find less reputable that says that Elvis paid his medical bills at least for a while until he died. When, when did Elvis die? What year? 77, August. 77. So maybe he paid him for a couple of years or something. Yeah, it's just a couple of years. But. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that was the early 70s. But you, I would say it's Dick Clark because uh, Elvis was hopped up on goofballs. And- yeah. So I, I found a couple of of sources, neither of which seemed incredibly reputable, but I have found it in a couple of places in the research that he doesn't really, he never really talked about it, but basically Dick Clark quietly paid Jackie Wilson's bills. He was there that night. He was on stage with him. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea about any of this, by the way, this is all new. There you go, man. And this is all I can say. And this time, where we are in a weird spot in this country. And, you know, when you're not feeling good on those days, because everybody has them, let's just all admit that there are a lot of days during this time where we are like, this sucks and there's no end in sight. I will tell you, one of the things that has helped my mental health is turning on Jackie Wilson. Yeah, because it's super fun. God, Jackie Wilson is unbelievable. I will say later... Like right before his death, some of those recordings, not as great. But the first couple of decades, the 50s and the 60s, unbelievable. Absolutely some of the, I mean, the voice is just, and if you only know your love is lifting me higher, you're doing yourself a injustice. Well, I need to do some more, um, I need to more check it out, man. I don't know that much about him. This is great. He is an amazing dude who doesn't get enough credit. You hear about James Brown. You know, you hear even even you hear about Wilson Pickett, who's from Louisville, Kentucky. We should do an episode on Wilson Pickett, but you don't hear that much yeah. about Jackie Wilson. No. And no. Jackie Wilson, I would say, is a I don't know that he's the reason we have Elvis, but he definitely influenced the King. And I mean, it's on tape and he definitely influenced Michael Jackson and he definitely influenced Lionel Richie. I mean, it's it's crazy the amount of influence this guy had. So tell somebody about Jackie Wilson today. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and I am happy you told me about all this. 
Thanks, Brian. Jackie Wilson versus his sex appeal. That's that's what that's the battle that Brian has explained for all of us to know it's, today. It's the battle we all and, fight on rock and roll bedtime stories. A terrific story. Thank you. That's you know, good. You know what we should keep doing? What? Keep telling, telling stories. stories. Yeah, buddy. I'll see you next time.